Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. My guest today is Christine Deo. Christine is a professional root setter of 10 years, and until very recently, she was the head root setter at the Austin Bouldering Project in Austin, Texas. Christine was recommended to me by Tande Catillo. Tande is the director of root setting for the Bouldering Projects and has been on the show. You might remember him from episodes 40 and 41, which were excellent. I would highly recommend going back and listening to those if you enjoy this conversation. I wanted to talk to a lady root setter. I haven't had any ladies who work in that profession on the podcast yet. I've had a few guys, and I thought it would be an interesting perspective to dig into. So I reached out to Tande, and Christine was at the top of his list, and unsurprisingly, she is awesome, and this was a really good interview. We covered a lot of ground, and a lot of this was fascinating. I've been bouldering in gyms for close to 14 years now, and I've even worked as a root setter, and there was a lot of stuff that came up in this conversation that I had never thought about. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Christine. A quick reminder that there is another Climb Well retreat coming up. If you enjoyed my conversations with Blake Kaysen earlier this year, you might be interested in checking it out. This is the second retreat that they've done. The first one sounded awesome, and this one will be September 23rd through 26th in Rifle, Colorado, which is one of my favorite places in the world. You can learn more about the retreat at climbwell.co. And if you choose to sign up for the retreat, be sure to use the promo code NUGGET10 at checkout for a 10% discount on your registration fee. And let me know if you decide to go. I will very likely be in the canyon during that time. Thanks for tuning in, friends. And without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive into the world of setting with Christine Deo. To get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, and I've got two questions for you. Uh, first, how did you get started in climbing? And then after that, I'd love to hear how root setting came into the picture. But do you remember how you first started with climbing? Uh, I do. It actually was a really long time ago. So my dad used to climb. Um, he climbed in California back in the like sixties. And so he had always been into it and they'd moved to Salt Lake, um, when he was first looking for like a postdoc. And so he was still climbing there. And so when I was born, I, he was still taking my brother out to do like some really easy climbing. Um, and I was a little bit too young. He got a shoulder injury, stopped climbing, moved into fly fishing. Um, so I was just a little too young to get to do a lot of it, but I did go to like summer camp at recreation in Salt Lake. Um, we had all of the like moving over stone videos that I would watch <laughs> a lot as a child and I would just kind of dabble in it. So I went, did it a little bit in high school and I also, did it a little bit in um, college right at the very beginning. And then my sophomore year, but I was never like super into it because I was never really into like rope climbing 
for some reason it scared me a lot. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, still does. I don't, I apparently don't like it that much. Um, but then my sophomore year of college back in 2006, I first encountered just bouldering. The circuit had opened up in Portland and I got taken there by some of my friends. They were super psyched on it. And I tried it and I was like, I love this. This is amazing. And I just became obsessed with bouldering. Um, and it was there so much during that first summer, made friends with all the staff and then had a hard time stepping away from it. For, <laughs> and that was what, <laughs> I guess, goodness, 15 years ago. So that was how I started climbing. Where did you go to college? Uh, Reed College in Portland. And why the Northwest? Why Portland? I'm, I'm just curious since I grew up in the Northwest and lived in Oregon for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I grew up in Salt Lake, but right around 13, I moved, my parents moved to Redmond, Washington. Um, my dad got a job at Microsoft. So I was already in the Northwest and I wasn't like necessarily looking for a local college, but I didn't want to be in the same town as my parents. So I was like somewhere somewhat close by. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do physics or not. And my brother, who was a physics major, was like, oh, Reed has a really good physics program and they have a reactor there. And so I went and took the tour um, the school and I was just like, oh, wow, everyone here is awesome. It's like super weird people, <laughs> <laughs> really weird people. Um and like, I think that I just felt like that was going to be a nice home that was like far enough away from the parents, still felt like a culture that I could really get into beautiful campus. Um, so I was just like, I'll just try it. Um, and then I had absolutely no regrets when I went. It was amazing. Oh, that's great to hear that. That's awesome. What did you end up studying then? Uh, I was a biochemistry major. Okay. Biochemistry. My sister and her husband both kind of ended up in that track. She did uh, organic oh, and cool. I think he did biochem and they both work in the pharmaceutical industry. But that's interesting. You know, they, they ended up going down that track. But how did you end yeah. up in root setting then as a career? Um, <laughs> in a very odd way. Um, I was unemployed. Uh, so <laughs> I went directly into working for a lab at the hospital in town after I graduated from college. And it was doing, um, building like a viral vector in mice to uh, do some research on part of the inner ear. And I found out that while I ethically had at the time and kind of still don't have massive problems with the animal research side of it, things, I didn't myself enjoy doing it. I didn't like causing pain to the mice and I was totally doing that. So I was actually having a lot of problems wanting to work there. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. And right around that same time, I had some friends that had been econ majors that were leaving this really sweet job at this insurance slash retirement planning company in Portland. And were like, do you want our job as a financial analyst? And I was like, sure. I've always been interested in business. I used to watch the nightly business report as a child. Like I would love to try that out. I was never sure if this is something I wanted to do and it's just it fell into my lap. So I tried that and then I got laid off six months later. Um, cause this was 2009 and like nobody had money <laughs> and it's all based on commissions, etc. So I found myself unemployed in a really bad job market in Portland. Um, 
And so I was like, okay, I guess I have to give up and move back with my parents. And so I was up there for a year doing temp work. It's like a secretary or like whatever I could find. And one of the former circuit employees, this guy, Adam Healy, who is really good friends with all the circuit folks, but also some other people. I was like, hey, I have some friends that are looking to open up a gym in Seattle. Um, Can I put you in contact with them? I know you're looking for a job. Would you like to, I know they're looking to hire people. Do you want to work for them? It's like, sure. I have nothing else I am doing. So he put me in contact with Chris Potts and Andy Wyatt, um, who were opening up Seattle Bouldering Project. And I went in there and it's like, hey, I need a job. And they're like, cool, front desk. Also, do you want to set? Because um, hmm. I was lucky that right at that point, 2011, you climbed like V7, you were considered a strong lady and everyone's like, yes, we want you. So I got offered the opportunity to do it. And then I bugged the headsetter, it's guy Adam Brosser, to be like, actually follow through on that promise that the owners had given me. <laughs> so he was willing to do that because I knew him and he was like, okay, yeah, yeah, you'll be reasonable. So he gave me a super part-time setting job that as time went on and people left the crew, uh, I just kind of filled in and started working full-time. And then by the time he left a year later, I was the most senior person on the crew because there'd been a fair amount of turnover that first year. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I want to ask some questions about that early position at Seattle Bouldering Project, but I I have to ask about one thing that you just said in passing. I just wrote it down. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) You used to watch the nightly business report as a child. Yeah, on PBS, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my dad would watch it. So I was just like, you know, you're there as a kid and you just like (laughs) absorb what your parents are doing. And you're like, yeah, totally. This is normal. And it's, I recognize definitely not normal. (laughs) Well, I just, I just am intrigued by it. I mean, none of us are normal, but what, what was it that, was it just because he was watching it and it was just normal to watch it? Or did you actually find it interesting? Do you remember? I like learning things. So I actually found it interesting as soon as I was old enough to kind of understand what was going on. um, I do find like, I think. Business, I find it intriguing because it's kind of a reflection of human character. Um, Mm. You see really base things coming out of people in pursuit of money. And I find that fairly fascinating. Um, It's not necessarily how I would always think about things, but it's kind of crazy stories of like people's life stories. A business is people's life stories. It's their hopes, dreams, what they wanted to do, and then watching how that encounters the world and they have to kind of work through that and come out with something on the end that's like a story that they're trying to tell people to either sell a product or to get employees or whatever. And I think it's just kind of so weird. It's like a false world that we create, but it is our world because that is money. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I think it was just kind of crazy to hear about all the stuff that goes on. And you're like, is this real life for (laughs) realsies? But it is. And that's where all the money in the world is. (laughs) Wow. You actually made me want to watch the nightly business report, I think. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, I really, it's maybe that's not really that cool. exciting, really but like, like, yeah. 
I like how you described it though. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask about how you learned to set then. Did you just, were you just under the mentorship of that head route setter at the time? Yeah, pretty Was much. Just like um, jump in, sink or swim? <laughs> Very much so. Like the interview was like, okay, here's the basics of how to put a bolt in a hold. Okay, cool. Set me a route. I want a V2 right here. And it was reasonably close to V2. Um, and the movement kind of worked. So it was like, all right, good. You're good to go. Let's do this. And I was only allowed to set like <laughs> a half day, one day a week at the beginning, I guess, to maybe limit the damage that they had to deal with. Um, but the rest <laughs> of the crew was a couple of the most experienced like setters in Seattle at that time. People that were kind of been in retirement, but had come out of retirement because they were kind of excited about the possibility of a new gym. And then I think we're like, oh, actually, I don't really enjoy working at a gym. I thought maybe it was just the gym, but maybe it's just actually working it at a gym. Um, so they had some mentorship involved, but mostly it was the head setter. They were just kind of, we're going to go over here, produce a bunch of our boulders, and then let the head setter kind of deal with what you need to learn. But at that time, the requirements weren't super high. It was mostly if you could get hit the grade. And if you had something that flowed reasonably well, the feet were placed where they were supposed to go. And you're not doing anything that's wildly dangerous. You were good to go. And that was kind of the expectation was just boulders that feel really nice. Um, probably heavily influenced by the fact that the head setter was uh, originally a vertical world setter. And I think that rope setting and the mindset behind rope setting has to be different than the mindset behind bouldering. Um, mm. you can't go crazy in rope setting. It turns really hard, really fast if you try to go too nuts. So I think the emphasis is much more on, does it flow well? Is it the right grade? Is it consistent? And is it still entertaining enough that it doesn't feel like the same move over and over? And if you can do those four things, you are a great setter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it was actually pretty easy to learn initially. I think the majority of the learning I had to do that was much harder came after that. Hmm. Well, that's intriguing. I want to I want to bookmark that and come back to that. I'd love to ask how the qualifications for route setting have evolved. Um, you know, you've worked as a head setter for a while down in Austin at the Boulder Project there. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for when you hire a new setter these days? Do they have to have qualifications, certifications? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of funky. I know that, so if you go onto Climbing Business Journal, you'll see kind of a, a pattern has emerged of how people are looking for setters. And one of the biggest patterns that I'm seeing is just an increase in the requirements, particularly if they're in a leadership role for USAC certifications. And I've always found that a little bit funky because the USAC certification system is built to produce competition route setters for USA Climbing. And a mm. lot of their focus is especially youth. Um, the, the two courses that they offer, like the your level one, your level two, are very focused on being able to set effectively for youth um, and then being able to run a youth comp. And to say that that is a translatable skill to commercial route setting where the majority of the customers are adults and are not competition climbers, 
it's a little odd that that is, but I also see why that would be happening because there is no other way for, if you have an owner that's newer to the industry or is just less experienced with setting, how do they evaluate somebody as a setter? You're going to latch on to kind of what is the easiest to understand on a USAC certification. At least somebody's done betting and they're probably not likely to set something that's going to kill someone. So that's like a good first step. But I don't th- personally think that that should be the end all. So I know that that's what a lot of people look at, but I don't like to hire based off of USAC certifications. I think that they learn one skill set, and it doesn't mean that they don't have different skill sets. It just means that it tells me only one part about who they are. So if they have them, cool. If they don't have them, cool. I'm mostly looking when I'm hiring people for people that have a fair amount of climbing experience. Um, I don't like to hire people that started setting and climbing right at the exact same time because I think it does something funky to you as a setter. Uh, I think it's really one of the values of not setting initially is that you kind of know what it feels like to be a consumer. Uh, If you start setting at the same time you start climbing, I think it's really hard to teach people what it is like when you don't know how this problem was put on the wall. Um, And that mindset is very, very valuable for us as setters. We have to be able to put ourselves in that mind of the consumer. And if we never were just a consumer, I don't know how you could easily do that. Um, So I look for people that have a couple years at least of climbing, preferably before they started setting. And then also for people that have a fair amount of outdoor climbing experience, or if they don't have a lot of outdoor climbing experience, kind of are very excited about it. Because that often, I think those people are interested in learning. And those people are interested in exploring new things. And they're also open to discomfort or, or just not knowing um, because you can't control the outside climbing experience as much as you can inside. Uh, so I think that's really valuable. And then somebody who has a good personality that's going to be able to mesh with the rest of the team. Mm. And so I try to assess all of that in like a phone call before I even bring people in. And then when we bring them into set, because uh, we do a trial set with them before hiring, Um, At that point, I do want to see how they're interacting with the team. How good are they at communicating their ideas? How open to changing ideas are they? Are they open to suggesting suggesting to the other setters changes? And then also kind of assessing what their ideas are and their understanding of uh, like basic climbing movement, et cetera. Mm. And if that all seems good, then I'm psyched to hire them (laughs) if I can afford them. (laughs) Cool. That was a really good answer. Yeah, that, that's all really interesting. I, I want to go back to the thing that we bookmarked a second ago. Mm-hmm. What have been some of the chapters in your own setting? Or, or I guess you just mentioned a lot of your learning as or growth as a setter yourself came later. Are there specific people or experiences or chapters in your setting in your career that you would point to for that that you can expand on? Totally. Um I think one of the big key ones is Tande. Um, he came to, I remember the first week that he came, he was doing his kind of trial interview with us. He had been put in contact with the uh, SVP by Mike Helt back in like the fall of 2012. And they, Mike was like, yeah, there's this French setter that's floating around that's kind of looking to move to the US. Um, 
because we had a, at the time a much more uh, professionalized setting industry. So they brought Tande in to work with us on our big comp that fall. And I remember he put up a couple boulders that we were just like, I, I don't know. What is this? <laughs> this is <laughs> can, can you describe not like them? anything we've ever seen. Um, like what one was the character? Was, yeah. So he had a, a crazy, crazy, I don't remember if he set the dino or Brett set the dino, but there was this crazy dino in finals that was like the scariest looking sideways jump ever. It was horrifying. Um, and then there was a boulder that he put on like a really short top out boulder that it was like four holds and it was bad slopers that I remember the grade was supposedly low and there was like no clues as to how to climb it. It was just these <laughs> holds that looked like none of them would work together. And I remember projecting that thing after the competition for like weeks and then finally figuring something out. And I wish I could remember what the small like key was, but suddenly it was like easy. And I was like, what was that? <laughs> like, How was this so hard yet suddenly so easy? I don't get it. Um, and then he said another one that was just like this easy boulder that was like 30 holds on this easy boulder. And it was super short and all the holds were touching. And he made it. What stood out about that one is when we were forerunning it, because it was supposed to be for like the children, child portion of the comp. He was like forwarding it like a child and he was like super scrunched down and was like just doing reaches of a child. And you're like, that's weird. I've never seen somebody forward like that before, <laughs> but it made sense. <laughs> it totally made sense. But it was kind of the first time I've been exposed to the idea of like actually trying to put yourself more in the mindset of that, not memorizing this hold is V1, this hold is V2, but rather like trying to act like that level of climber and seeing how the climb felt rather than just memorizing which holds go to what. So those were, that was an interesting competition. I also felt really like Tade was very nice because he was, I still felt very new to setting and in the comps, we would bring in all these experienced setters. And he was, he went out of his way to like talk to me as a female setter and be like, I had had a bunch of guys coming up to me during the, that year when we were looking to hire our setters and they were like, I just want you to know that like women are really valuable. And you're like, thank you for explaining that to me. Um, <laughs> but Tommy <laughs> never did that. He treated me like a setter, not like a female setter. And that was really refreshing. So I think that was the other thing that mm. was really cool was it was kind of the first person that was like, you have potential to be a good setter we can talk about like how the gender plays into that because we can't ignore that as an experience, but first and foremost, you're a setter. So that was really eye-opening. and then getting to work with him and work on climbing training with him, um, did a lot for my climbing, did a lot for my perspective of what setters are to people that are climbing in our gyms. And so that was kind of like the big chapter was Tande. Um, mm. Hence probably why he told you to reach out because like, I've worked mm -hmm, with him for a long mm -hmm. time and I, I, I'm flattered that he thought of that. Um, but yeah, I'll always see him as one of my main mentors and setting, but a couple other ones that have been pretty useful is Tande has put us in contact with a couple of guest setters that I have then used to kind of expand my own time with them. So he put us in me in contact with, um, this French setter, Florian Escoffier. Uh, who he had brought in for like a guest set while Tonder was still head setter at SBP. 
And Florian was there for, I think, a month almost. And he's an amazing setter. Really, really good. Um, and I brought him back when I moved down to Austin. I had brought Florian and then one of his coworkers, this guy Tebow, Spore, who is probably one of the greatest setters that has ever existed. Nobody just knows about him. But wow. um, both of them are so good. And getting to work with them for a couple of weeks was like eye-opening on how to run a program because they uh, were running the setting at a couple of gyms, the Arcos gyms in Paris, and they were in charge of the setting there. And this is a gym that is often treated as like a training gym for the French national team. Like the, the, um, the world cup climbers are going there and they have circuits that are so hard. Um, and they're crazy. Like I have had the opportunity to climb at, uh, uh, Arcos gym just once. And I had my mind just blown by so many climbs that I got on where like, I would never have thought to set this. Mm. This is insane. And so having Florian and we've brought him back since for a guest set as well as a resource to talk to about like circuit design and uh, training of setters and kind of even just volume usage and having that resource of like the French setting perspective has been really cool as well. So that's maybe another chapter of like what the French setters have been able to teach. Mm. Um because they even put me in contact with like, I had the j- opportunity to go set at Karma with like Jackie Godoff a couple times. Oh, wow. And learn from him. And it was like, that's really cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can go hang out with the French setters. So that was probably, yeah, the second big chapter of a lot of learning of just kind of what it means to be a more experienced setter and how I can start expanding, like sending that knowledge out into the world, I think was a lot of what the French were really focused on. And then the last really cool, like the one I'm kind of currently in. uh, So in 2019, I had the opportunity to travel out to Tokyo and some of the other guest setters that we had had brought in by Tande initially were uh, Japanese setters. And because Tande has a very solid base of connections in Japan. And he had put me in contact with some of them. And I ended up reaching out to them saying, Hey, I'm going to be in, uh, in Japan for this month. And they were like, do you want to come set with us? And so I'm just going to go with the Japanese setters are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) They are crazy in like an opposite way from the French setters. Like what I had been taught by the French world to set, you go to Japan and they're like, I don't understand what you're setting. But then you're like, I don't understand what you're setting. Like your stuff's even weirder. Um, It requires so much strength and it looks like it shouldn't, but it is so hard. And Mm. how they move is so they're so confident and they have like no, they just try so hard. And I just, I, I got owned the entire time I was there. I sat for like a youth comp and I got owned, like shown up so hard by like an eight year old. And I was like, <laughs> well, well, that'll happen. Things. That's, yeah. <laughs> it'll happen to the best was, of us. It was, it was a crazy dino. And this kid was just like crushing it. And you're like, I think that we undersell <laughs> our American children on their climbing abilities. And I see why Japan's going to be in charge, like ahead of all of the rest of us for quite some time. <laughs> this is what's coming up through the system. Holy shit. <laughs> but I got to meet, yeah, some other setters that you're like, these are maybe some of the strongest people I've ever run into. And nobody knows who they are because they're not on the Japanese national team. But 
they were really cool to set with. There's like massive language barrier, but you don't really need to be able to speak the same language on the setting team, just enough to be able to kind of basically communicate. And then after that, yeah, being around them, I think right now I push a lot of exploration in my setting that there's a lot of attempt to recreate some of the feelings on the climbs that I had there where you're like, this is impossible. This is totally impossible. It's still impossible, but if I try harder, it becomes possible. (laughs) Mm. If I fear less, it becomes (laughs) possible. Um, Yeah, so that's the story of my setting saga so far. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's great. And I would love to ask you, you said something interesting. You're talking about these two French climbers, uh, these two French setters. What were their names again? Florian? Uh, Florian, Escoffier, and Thibaut Lescour. Okay, and Thibaut. You just talked about how good they were. And when you have that contrasted with the style in Japan, this might seem like a silly question, but I would love to ask you what makes a really good setter like what what is it about someone's setting that you see and you're like wow they're really really good is it uh you, novelty in movement is it aesthetics is it an ability to set above one's own climbing level is it a mix of all those things I, i'd love to hear how you think about that yeah that's a that's a big discussion we regularly talk about that on the abp setting team um as to what is good setting And how can you define it? And can it be defined by what it is? Or is it better defined by what it isn't? Um, Mm. And I don't think we entirely know. I have some thoughts on the matter, but I think that I'm still evolving in what my thought of good setting is. Um, Definitely a big part of it is novelty of movement. Um, I think what stands out for both the Japanese and the French setting is... and Perhaps it's less novel for them. I don't know. But the kind of one of the joys of, I think, going outside is that there's just such a variety of movement and even something that looks like it should be pretty basic often isn't. And I hope that one of our goals <laughs> in indoor setting is to kind of reproduce the experience of outdoors for people that don't necessarily have the access to it easily. Um that we would be prioritizing stuff that has that same kind of surprise of this is something I think I know what it is. Oh no, I don't. And there's something (laughs) to be learned here. Mm. Um, And it is something that my brain actually has to turn on and start thinking about what I'm doing. And even it might not have the answer, but if I try enough different things and get creative enough or talk to friends and make new friends or watch people, I will learn something and I will be a better climber for it. Um, and that, I don't know if that's, I, I'm pretty sure that that's not solidly universally agreed upon. I know some people think that setting should be for just getting stronger or just for um, providing uh, something for a climber to come in and experience without really thinking too much about what it's doing for that person. But I have a hard time wanting to set if that is the only answer. Mm. I think I prefer that it be something of, we are providing a skills set to a climber. And I think for any climber that says, oh, no, 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 that stuff's not for training outside. It's like, that's a lie if you climbed outside. <laughs> like, there's a lot of subtleties to be learned, even in what certain, maybe certain areas don't have as much. They're a little bit more grab and pull, but I think 
that's just a narrow definition and a narrow exposure to outdoor climbing then. So I think, yeah, novelty of movement is pretty key. Uh, aesthetics, I think, has to be thrown in there. It is like we are drawn to something about the climb when we're first looking at it, whether that be what our imagination creates when they see it. Just are we imagining the movement um, or whether it just really is a beautiful climb? Um, the question is, what is a high, good aesthetic? And I mean, that one, again, is going to depend on the individual um, some people don't want to look at a climb if it's under 15 feet. Um, <laughs> some people only want to look at slopers and like, this is impossible. I don't know what I would do. That's attractive to me somehow. Or, uh, some people might only think certain styles of climbs or, or like certain styles of rock are attractive or something. So the aesthetics definitely plays a part, but I think that that comes after, uh, kind of the function of the climb, but I think the best setting will marry the two. Um, it mm. is fully functional. It is teaching something to the climbers. It is following all kind of like basic design principles of things are usable. We are building in the usages of the holds into the, how we think the climb is going to be done. We're not throwing in other random ways it could be done that we're just forgetting about. Like we're using the right holds for the move, no more, no less, um, is one of my big ones is that there are basic design principles. And I think that applies to setting. And if you are following your basic design principles and there's not extraneous things, there's not stuff that's usable in ways that it shouldn't be usable. And we're kind of following the natural usage that people are going to stumble upon. Then I think if we're following those design principles, we will not do something bad. And that's a bit, you'd be a little bit of like design, uh, defining quality by what it isn't. If it's not poorly designed, mm. then is it perhaps well-designed? <laughs> 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 so yeah, following design, some aesthetics, uh, novelty of movement, and then also kind of how it's working within circuits and that more holistic viewpoint across the gym. I think to say that you could just say that setters can ignore the more global view of what's happening in the gym, I think is false. Um, we should know. And because it's people climb more than one climb when they come in, even in comps, people mm. climb more than one climb. So we have to watch how each individual climb is interacting with the others that it's supposed to be interacting with. Oh, that's, <clears throat> yeah, that's a really interesting element to it. And I talked about the circuit thing with Tonde. That's a unique system to the bouldering projects gyms, but would you be willing to uh, describe that, how that works? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so it is based off of um, kind of the concept of being able to run circuits in font. In font and blue? Yeah, in font and blue. Um, it is, yeah, it's odd because it's like every, all the gyms in Europe have these circuits. And then in the US, it's a newer thing. There are still a bunch of gyms that have circuits, but I feel like their feeling behind it or their, the thought behind it is more as a grading scale rather than an experience. Um, I mm. think it's really hard to kind of absorb what that means for a circuit in the gym to be an experience unless you have actually gone and experienced like a circuit in, in font. Like if you've never run a circuit there, it's a little bit odd to convince somebody to start running a circuit in a gym unless they really buy into climbing training. 
Um, <laughs> Cause otherwise mm. it's like, well, why would I do that? Like, what's, what's the point? Oh, I just, it's just training. And it's like, no, there's actually, um, it doesn't even have to be about training. It's about an experience that I don't have to think as much about, but is kind of a challenge in and of itself. And also keeps you uninjured and <laughs> because it means you're not beating your head against a wall of like this one move again and again and again. You're not trying to project really hard on things, but you're also, especially if you're doing it with another person, it's like a really wonderful challenge um, of being able to go from climb to climb to climb. Who can do it? Who can't? Oh, we can both do it. It's much more interactive, it seems, than just, oh, what's the next climb I want to get on? Can we zoom in on that? Uh, I'm curious if you've if you've actually been to Fontainebleau yourself and done this, and I'd, yes. I'd love to hear you just yes. describe the experience because I've never been. I, I've heard about the colored dots at the base of climbs, but um, but yeah, I'd love to hear you just describe how totally. the, how the circuits go there. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Um, the circuits are like there's different types of ones. My favorite experience, I think, was um, running. It was the I want to say it was the yellow circuit in this uh, sector called Rocher Kennel. And it's a mountaineering circuit. So the circuits were designed originally as the kind of Parisian mountaineers being like, we want to train mountain climbing, but there's no mountains <laughs> stuck in the middle of the plains. How do we do that? And so they were like, well, we're just gonna build a lot of climbing fitness. Um, so they, in each of the sectors, they would find boulders that were like somewhat similarly difficult to be, and they would mark the starts and then they would number them. And so when you're right, particularly on the easier circuits, what happens is like you look for your set, your start, you like look for the number. Okay. This is yellow number one. Um, and there's like a little dot for where your feet go. Um, is this like painted on the boulders? It is painted directly onto the boulders. And there's a society <laughs> that goes around and like refreshes the paint. And if it gets too polished or the circuits too old, cause some of them are very old. Um, they'll actually repaint onto like different holds that are wow. less glossy. Um, so, and that, yeah, some of them, the moss grows over it. You can't find the circuits. Like it's a little bit of it. Maybe that's part of the adventure, but yeah, I was, I was, I climbed this yellow circuit with, uh, this woman from Finland, uh, Hannah, who Todd had put me in contact with and they were in font for the month that I was. And we we're like, let's do this. And you don't need a crash pad. It was like easy enough. And it marks where you start. And then when you get to the top of the boulder, there's a little arrow telling you where you down climb. And then you go down the down climb. And then there's these little dots on the boulders on the ground. And you're effectively playing the floor is lava. Um, you're oh supposed to be God. like jumping from like boulder to boulder or like going, like traversing once you get to the bottom of the boulder to the next climb. And you're not supposed to really touch the ground. And so you are winding your way through this forest, but it's not a massive numbers of boulders. There's maybe like a couple hundred boulders in this small little section. And you're kind of winding around trying to find the next boulder. And it's, it's all there. It's a little bit hard to see because you're not entirely sure, but the arrows all point you where to go. The dots tell you where to start. You know where you're supposed to go down so that you will be right next to the next climb. And you kind of become obsessed with like, we're just going to do the whole thing. It's, we're just going to go. And you're like, you're going to get kind of tired and you start like not thinking about it so much. And you're pulling moves that you didn't think you were going to do. And you're not really, you get into a mindset where you're not like problem solving, where you're just feeling the climbing. 
And hmm. you go and these, this thing was, I think it was like 46, 47, maybe a little bit less than that. And things were getting sketchy by the end because they're less trafficked at the end of the circuit. And it was like definitely some like potential death falls if you like slipped on the lichen and you're like, well, here goes. And they're all super easy, oh but you're like kind of thinking about that. But it will teach you so much about climbing movement to do that. Um, and it's like you get done and you're like, I want to do it again. I want to do it at a different circuit now. And it's like, I don't know necessarily quite how to describe it other than I'm sure Alpinists would probably feel that sense of it. It's like a sense of adventure added into the just individual challenges of the individual boulders. And I think we boulders don't get to experience that that so often. And so to say that that is still a very much a part of climbing and adventure doesn't come just from going out to some wilderness. Adventure can come in some other smaller form of just a larger challenge that has smaller individual challenges associated with it. I think that's maybe some of the value of the circuits. And so being able to bring that indoors, like when I go set out at ABP and I'm like, I'm going to climb the orange circuit today. Like, I'm not entirely sure. There's a question. Will I be able to climb the whole orange circuit? Is there going to be one that like, especially if I limit myself to like one tribe or climb, like which ones can I do? Which ones can't I do? Oh, that one's coming up. Oh, I would have normally avoided that one, but oh, that one sucks. It's (laughs) so hard, but I have to do it. I have to do it. And you're like, tell this story to yourself as you're climbing. And it, I think that that is maybe a huge value to the circuit. Well, that's so, that's so cool. So in your gyms, you have a color system and they're numbered in the same way. We don't number them. And that would be, we've toyed with the idea. Um, I don't know if the BPs would be like massively into us doing it. Uh, I've toyed with doing that at ABP for a while there of what if we did number them or what if you give a subset of like, these are the setter chosen circuits. So if you climb this level, we would suggest, and maybe we'll switch it up and it's not all one color this time, but like having chosen circuits that people can experience and play with. We've done it when we've had the guest setters in that are more experienced with circuits. We've had them like choose circuits for us. Uh, that we can then advertise to our members to experience something a little bit different as maybe a way of easing them into running a full circuit because it can get a little intimidating. Like uh, when we're at full density, like the black circuit is almost 40 boulders. That's at V4 to V6. Like that's a, that's an experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's going to be hard. (laughs) Yeah. So you don't have to do the whole thing. And I think it's nice to like skip out on like maybe the dumber climbs. I don't know, but sometimes (laughs) it's nice to make people have to do those too. So that was my next question. So each circuit has a grade range of about three grades. Yeah. Three grades. Uh, Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and they overlap, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What's the overlap is key because I know a lot of places don't necessarily overlap them, but I think if you want to encourage people to a explore that next circuit up, and then you don't want like gapage that makes it really hard to get to that next circuit, you have to have a significant portion of overlap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So they, they might've, I don't know how the color hierarchy goes, but maybe they've done uh, the the blue one and and this boulder was on the blue one and they did it and then the orange one has that same boulder but the orange one's supposed to be harder and they're like okay well at least I can do some of these climbs that are that are in this yeah. next circuit mm-hmm. up okay 
Yeah. So if you like climb V4, you, there's three different colors that include V4 in their range. So you don't know if we don't put the grades on them, which we don't, then you have no idea what the difficulty of this climb you're going up to. So you're going to automatically be exposed to a wider variety of, of grades and climbing styles. Uh, and I think that that is good. It keeps some of the kind of the exploration and the uncertainty in, and I know some people don't like that. They're like, I just want to control every instance of everything that's going on at the gym. But again, I don't think that that is an accurate representation of climbing in general. So I mm-hmm. really appreciate any time that it, something encourages people to approach something with an open mind of this might work, this might not, but it's worth trying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's really cool. Tande talked about that too, how, you know, grades, we think of them as uh, like the metric system or something. We think of them yeah. as like meters, but they're, they're anything, but they're anything, but and yeah, it's such a lie. He's totally right. <laughs> it's such a lie. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone who's bouldered outside, um, even a little bit will know that. Uh, oh, so totally. I do, yeah. I do think that's a really cool element of it. And I think I used to have a little bit of that frustration that you probably hear from some other people because I do mm-hmm. like to have a structured plan and things, but Yep. What's so cool these days is that you can always just go to the boards for that. You know, like I always yeah. wanted to have more climbs in the gym that were exactly what grade I wanted on cramps or whatever I wanted to train that day. And now you can just jump on the tension board and do exactly the the thing that you want to train. So I think the combination there is really cool. Yeah, it's a, uh, and it, I think there is some value to saying that like you can still train the strength. What I think is lost often in the climbing training is that people, it's like the strength is the final goal. And we know that's not correct. (laughs) If strength is the final goal, like then why are there people that can do like all these crazy one-arm pull-ups, not winning every competition? Like there is more Mm. to climbing than just the physical strength that comes with it. And I think, again, that's one of the values of trying to create the main boulders away from the boards that will draw people to them that encourage them to explore a little bit because, and maybe, you know, it's maybe un-American of me to <laughs> say that. I know that American <laughs> set climbers are so like, yeah, we're going to get strong. And then they go to these places outside and they're like, this is really hard. It's just too hard. I can't climb this. And it's like, no, you can. It's actually physically not that hard. It's just, that's the problem, right? Is that it's physically not that hard. So they grade it really low and then we get just like depressed because there's this V3 that these V12 climbers can't do. And they're like, I didn't hate this. <laughs> and yeah, I guess it's just, it's, it's harder to measure progress in how good are my skill sets? Like, how do you measure that? I, fuck if I know. Um, you can only measure it over like a much longer time period. So I think that just, we're so used to immediate gratification of like seeing improvement week to week almost. Mm that I think that is, uh, it's the draw of the boards and it's the draw of just the physical strength training. But I think that that is detrimental to many people's climbing development, honestly. I would love to ask you how you use the circuits yourself. And we don't need to go too far down this because I I don't want to get derailed into a conversation about how you're training and and all that stuff because I am very tempted to do that. Yeah, my training's not that cool. (laughs) Okay. okay. It's not that cool. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I just am curious, like, 
is that the foundation of how you approach your climbing days? Are you are you planning your day around a given circuit color that you want to focus on? And I'd love to hear how you're using that system. Yeah. Um, so these days I am coming back from a finger injury, which was a really lame finger injury from a Frisbee. Oh, damn. Kind of climbing related. I know. I that know. Is I annoying. back in college and I got really excited. We were like throwing a disc around. I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to get in there. And then I felt something on my finger. I was like, it's fine. And then the next day I was like, oh, it's not fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's one of the more embarrassing uh, climbing injuries, non-climbing related injuries. So I'm coming back and I find the circuits really, really useful when I am coming back from injury, which I have had to do a lot. And I think what's nice is that it's super tempting when you're coming back from injury to shortcut the process. And the circuits are really nice for being able to kind of turn off my brain on making choices, which takes away the choice of, well, I could try something harder. It's like, no, actually the same me goes, you're going to do the green circuit today. It's it's V1 to V3. You're not going to put yourself in that much trouble. You're probably not going to encounter anything that's going to hurt you on this circuit. So you just do the green circuit. (laughs) Mm. And it's very easy to stick to that uh, when rehabbing. And what I like about it is I'm actually finding right now, we've been setting a lot of like dinos in the green and purple circuits recently, even in red for a moment there, which is our like easiest circuit. And I don't like dinoing, but I've been running the circuit so much over the past two months that I have actually become much more comfortable with that style of movement. And I think that is a value to it for the training for me is that now I'm kind of psyched to continue running them because it is good to remind myself of the diversity of the movement and be forced to get on things that I don't necessarily want to get on. Um, It is very tempting to, once I feel healthy, jump back to just like playing on the hard stuff that looks fun. But I think for my own health as a climber and my own uh, learning, the circuits are something that I have to make myself stick with, uh, even though they're like, they're scary. It's like, there is an intimidation factor that when you get the higher circuits and you start having to question, am I going to succeed? Am I going to fail? And I have to start working through that mental process. It, if it's a circuit that I should be able to do every climb, but I'm not hundred percent sure it actually kicks me into the same mindset that I get when I would do any competitions of you're really facing doubt and you're facing it on something that you don't have an easy excuse of saying it's too hard for me. You're just like, maybe I'm a little bit tired, but I should be able to do this. And I think at least for my own mental confidence and climbing, the circuits are really good for me there. Yeah. Hmm. I want to ask a couple of listener questions real quick um, because yeah. I think they're good. And if I don't do it now, we might not we might not ever get to them. <laughs> and I had one from Joe that I think we already covered. He was curious about um, climbing, you know, in different places of the world and and kind of collaborating with uh, other cultures and stuff in our setting. And I think we talked about that. Um, mm-hmm. I have one from Tyler, and we've kind of touched on this too, but we didn't talk about one element of it. So I'll ask this one. Uh, he writes, okay. many gyms have increasingly embraced a more parkour setting style popularized in comps. My local gym has taken this a bit too far, in my opinion. 
Often I have to scour the gym for a single crimp problem or any sort of movement resembling what I climb outside. What are your thoughts on this style of setting and how do you strike a balance between the popular parkour style and the type of movement more often found on real rock? Mm. Um, it's funny because you actually do encounter that stuff outside. <laughs> you just have to go to different spots. It's obviously much less prominent, but like I know run and jumps and like crazy dinos like that in, uh, in font, <laughs> like, they exist. Mm. Um, even in like Leavenworth, we had one that like, it was an easy, or sorry, it's, it's an easier boulder. If you do it as a massive, like runway, run and jump, it's this boulder called pretty boy that like, it's a really hard, like sloper climb if you want to do it that way. But multiple times I've been with crews where everyone's like, you know what the easiest answer is just run up the wall. (laughs) 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 So it happens outside too. Um, But I think that is another advantage of the circuits is that it's much easier as a headsetter to be able to look at what the offerings in the gym are. If you can break it down by circuit, then you can kind of begin to examine what is the diversity. And if the goal is a diverse circuit, then you start monitoring, okay, are we, how many dinos do we have in, in blue? Oh, there's like five. Okay. Well, there's 30 blues. Okay. That's that's the sixth of the set. Are they all different? Oh, they're all the same. Okay. <laughs> this is, uh, maybe we tone it down a little bit. Um, and if everyone's running circuits, then you're kind of getting, when you run that circuit, you're kind of experiencing what if a B for us, the blue circuits be five to be seven. Um, we know generally what a V five to be seven climber is going to be experiencing. If I run like the blue and the surrounding circuits, then I know what they're going to run into in the gym. And if I'm monitoring the the diversity of those three circuits, then I can monitor the diversity of the gym as a whole for that climber. Um, So that makes it easy to say, what is missing? What haven't you not had in a while? It's easy to coach the setters into that. They can even wander around. It's really easy rather than looking at grades and trying to keep track of that is quite simple to walk the walls and go, okay, let's look at all the blues. Okay. This is kind of the sense we're seeing a lot of really big holds, maybe not so many small ones. Let's do that. Or there's no volume climbs. We need something that has a lot more volume pulling or standing on volumes or the feet are all really big. Can we make some smaller feet? Um, or too many dinos or not enough dinos. I didn't actually see one. Um, oh, all the blues are in the steep walls. Where did all our blue slab climbs go? (laughs) That's really weird. Um, (laughs) We need to monitor that. So the circuits help a lot with maintaining that diversity. I think it can be done uh, without the circuits, but I think it is a little bit harder. There's something really nice about tying a color in that makes it easier for your brain to hold onto that information than walking the walls and being like, let me look at every V5. Because then even from a distance, you're like, fuck, what was that great on that one? Like, I can just look at the gym and see what the blue circuit is doing. So mm. um, so that's my thoughts on diversity is I think that we should have as diverse as possible. And that's just sometimes really hard to do. Um, I don't dislike the parkour style that they're referring to. Uh, I think it teaches a lot of lessons on commitment in your climbing of, uh, dealing with failure. Um, I think it teaches a lot about, uh, weight management and momentum 
management, how you generate it, how you handle it, how you direct it. And these are all necessary in certain movements. Like you take parkour, it's like the crazy big movement. But I think what you'll see a lot in like the Japanese climbing, for example, is that they take the lessons that are learned in those bigger motions and they apply them in these individual smaller movements that we can power through potentially. But if you can throw momentum into the system, it actually gets you through a really difficult moment much more easily. So I think the skills that are learned in that parkour style are very, very applicable to the other styles of climbing. Um, If you see somebody that does this, then you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Some climbers just kind of seem to like be able to switch their weight really quickly from position to position. And they're doing that exact same building of momentum somehow, managing its direction and stopping it. And they're doing it in like really small movements and if you think about how bad those holds are that they're potentially doing this on, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Actually, I know, I see what you're doing there. You're going from stable position to stable position as quickly as possible. And it is just, it's not as showy, but it's the exact same thing. So maybe that's a way that people that don't like the parkour style could think about its value to them as a climber. But I don't like to rank one style of climbing over another. I think they're all climbing <laughs> and they're all valuable. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. That was a really good uh, description because I'm I'm the type of person who tends to just dismiss the parkour and especially the run and jump sort of stuff. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, there were definitely a few qualities in your list there that I need to work on. So hmm, <laughs> might have to rethink that. <laughs> That's what that was one of the things that I learned yeah. from watching the Japanese climbers and the Japanese setters is that that is what they're so good at. And that's why, I mean, partially that's probably why they're doing so well at the World Cups is that they are very good at like generating and managing that momentum and directing it. But Mm. working with them and watching them on things that like are just tiny little movements, it was, you're like, whoa, wow. That looks like that shouldn't be hard. But when I tried it, it felt impossible. But then you're doing it and I'm seeing what you're doing and I can't reproduce it because I'm not very good at generating momentum really quickly in the right direction. Hmm. Uh, when you said weight management, is that what you mean? Like shifting your weight really quickly? Yeah. And which for which limbs it's coming from and, Hmm. um, which, yeah, like which foot you're even focused over and (laughs) yeah, I've just never heard that phrase in that context, but that, that makes sense. That's a cool, yeah, it's a cool phrase. So I'm reading Joe's question again, and there's part of it we haven't really touched on. Okay, yeah, are there I, ways, I missed something. Are there ways that setters, uh, this is a different question that I skipped over. Are there ways that setters around the world can collaborate more as far as uh, what gym and competition routes look like? Do you have thoughts on that? Meaning like getting the, the gym and competition setters to talk to each other? <laughs> to yeah, I guess, I guess how do I want to clarify that question? Um I guess, first off, is that something that happens at all? Like, is there any sort of global collective uh, collaboration, you know, to Mm. when we think about the IFSC or when we think about the Olympics, like are different countries working together to align their setting in any ways? And then maybe a different question that we could get into is um, how do you think about that with your crew, exposing them to Mm. different, different setting styles? Yeah, the crew one's the easy one. I mean, we've already kind of, Tande set us on the path towards it and we've continued it where it's like, 
yeah, if we have a guest setter that we can get from another country, it's like, bring them on in. <laughs> like, I want my crew to work with as many different people as possible. And we've worked with some that were like, ah, they're okay. There wasn't much we learned. And there's others we've worked with that you're like, oh, wow, that's very different. Um, but any time that you have the opportunity to set with anyone that is different background than you, I think there is something to be learned. And even if it's not, oh, I'm going to walk away with something really valuable from this, it might be I walk away with knowing what I don't like or what I don't think is useful. Um, but that takes money. So it's often something that is a little bit more difficult to handle. Um, we definitely also run into like visa issues and how, what are the ways to kind of like sneak around um, being able to bring somebody in to set and pay them, but also not run afoul of uh, all of the taxation rules and immigration rules that exist. So that definitely makes it trickier. I think it's a bit easier if you're not in the U.S. Uh, we have some of the stricter rules surrounding that. But as for whether there is collaboration that happens between the countries, I think a little bit less than would we would hope there would be. Um, it does occur. I think some countries are looking outside of themselves for kind of inspiration on how they can uh, grow their program. Like, honestly, that's where... Tande's connection to Japan comes from is that I think the Japanese Federation had reached out to uh, Tande. It was, Tande used to run a little a consulting firm with Florian and Thibault um, called Louverbois that they would go out and they would work with the Japanese national team and were effectively taught their setters how to set the French style, which was like the World Cup style at the time in like the early 2010s. And then the Japanese took that information, had a couple years of working with these setters and then ran with it. And we've seen what that did for them. Um, we've seen uh, Australia right now is focused a lot on trying to get people in that they have a lot of respect for. That is why Tande is headed there or went there um, is that they were <laughs> mm -hmm. like very excited to have him. They're like, you are good. We want to grow our program. Um, we're effectively guaranteed a uh, Olympic berth. So we want to make sure our climbers are like ready to go. Let's do this. So that exists. And if you, and I think that you'll find like the local setters are all very interested in wherever you travel, they want to work with uh, outside setters, but I don't think the federations are, putting a lot of effort into working with one another. Obviously the world cups are required to have a good mix of people on the setting crews, but it is a little bit insular. It's kind of the same people again and again that work on that are IFSC certified to be able to work in those crews. So I think they, the comp setters have a little bit more limited exposure to maybe the wider view in the countries that they are in. So yeah, there's not a massive system that I'm aware of that's set up for that. I think it'd be amazing if we could do it, but it definitely right now feels like there's like the World Cup setters have their climbing and setting, and then each of the individual countries might have something that like is a well, each of the individual gyms in many ways, it kind of falls to the gym level rather than the country level. Um, hmm. we'll find ways to bring in inspiration, but, but yeah, there's no major system. I wish there was, it'd be really nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see if that evolves, um, with the Olympics and just as climbing continues to evolve itself, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's interesting. 
Um, I have one more listener question that I want to hit, and this one's going to feel like a little bit of a right turn here, but okay. <laughs> I thought it was really good. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a question that I didn't think to ask because I've have done some setting. I'm just, I've been in climbing and in the scene longer and have known setters and, uh, but it's a really good question. Uh, this one's from Tim. He writes, I've watched the setters in our gym put up routes, but never done any setting myself beyond our little home bouldering wall. I'm curious where you draw inspiration from when setting routes. Do you just dump a bunch of holds in a pail and figure out a creative way to turn them into a route as you grab them uh, moving up the wall? Or do you start with an outdoor route you've recently climbed in mind and look for holds that you could approximate the movement with? Do you try to force certain ways of doing a route or do you like to have many ways to get there? So there's a lot to tackle there, but I'd love to just hear you describe your process um, when mm -hmm. you're, when you're about to set a new boulder. Yeah. I mean, it's funny cause it's, I've done all of those things. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's just like all that's of the cool. above. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I think that that's the key is that that is hard. Like how do you pull inspiration? How, and that is something I think that comes more with experience and setting. I remember I found it so hard when I first started, I actually would do homework before going into the setting days. Cause I was like, I have to set like seven boulders and I have no idea at what I'm going to put up. And I think one of the initial things that people think about first is I'm going to imitate. I'm going to imitate an outdoor boulder that I saw, or I'm going to imitate that indoor boulder that I saw that I thought was really cool. And I think learning by imitation and using that as a means of like trying to figure out how to set movement that didn't just occur to you is valuable. Um, I know it gets a bad rap sometimes. People are like, why are you setting that outdoor builder? It's really, it never works. Simulators don't work. And it's like, mm, but there's something valuable in this. Um, well, you just realized that you just realized they're not as fun as you thought they were. <laughs> Somehow they're not as fun as yeah, they are when, they, when they're on real it's rock, never, right? <laughs> it is imperfect. It is an imperfect imitation. And I think some of us, it kills us because you're like, ah, I really wanted it to be that boulder and it's not that yeah. boulder. But it, in and of itself is maybe not a bad climb, especially if you like clean it up a little bit and maybe you're okay with making some of the holds feel different, but the movement's still similar and you like kind of pick and choose your battles. You go, okay. Well, I'm not going to get everything I wanted out of this boulder. So what are the kind of the key things that are more interesting? And I'm going to really push those and then kind of sacrifice and give up on a couple of the other ideas. Maybe I really, really, really want a dyno with a tow hook catch. Maybe I just have to settle for it being a dyno and then try the tow hook gadget another day because it's just not working. <laughs> so mm. We'll just go with the dyno. Um, and I think a lot of like commercial setting is being able to make those compromises, um, recognizing a good idea when you see it and being willing to kind of give up on what the original idea was and moving like full speed ahead towards what that better idea is as you're running. So kind of having that open, flexible mind. But yeah, I used to have to watch, I'd go on to, this is back when Deadpoint magazine was still a thing. Um, <laughs> if everyone is still around, like, that is listening. <laughs> I, do, I do. I remember. Um, I was like, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I used to go on oh, yeah. have that video section and I would just be like, okay, I'm just going to watch the latest videos. And then if I found something cool, I'd like draw just what move I thought was cool. I'd draw that move with like a little stick figure and some holds and I'd put on a little <laughs> note card. I'd be like, come in the next day for setting with my little note cards. And 
that was how I would get through this. And I would have like a collection and which ones would work <laughs> for the wall we were working on that day or what holds were available. I would kind of pull from that and just be like, okay, this is my inspiration and I'm going to try towards it. And then I just have to be open to it changing if need be. Um, so that was I kind of the initial that. one. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's totally a thing. <laughs> Um, That's great. I don't know where you did. I It's like, I don't know. I used to think myself not as a creative person. And I think over time mm. I've learned creativity is something that can be learned. <laughs> it is possible. Mm. It's not an inherent thing. Um, and setting has definitely or shown cultivated, me that. cultivated at least for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Ah, I think learnable. You know what? I'm going to go with learnable. You think learned? Okay. Cool. I think it can be learned. I think that people, because I didn't think I was, as I said, I was like, you, I was one of those people that you would put me into like a class and they're like, come up with a project. And I'd be like, um, and it's just like blank. I would have no idea <laughs> what I was supposed to. Can you just tell me what I should do? Um, and I think there's a lot of people that are in that realm. I have a bunch of setters that are that way. Like I still feel it when I go into a finals. Uh, I hate setting finals boulders. That's probably something that's surprising like an unpopular opinion, but I hate setting finals folders because I, it is the blankest slate and you have the most freedom and I don't want mm. freedom. I want constraints. I work best when mm -hmm. I'm asked to solve problems with a lot of constraints in them. And that is common. Um, so one of the other things that Hande got us or showed us was how to create constraints for yourself as a means of accessing greater creativity. So that's where like setting games, setting challenges, um, have somebody pick out like the 10 holds you're going to get to use. Uh, we ran it. We had a Danish setter that we worked with who had a challenge where set a boulder, the holds all have to fit in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds heinous. <laughs> yeah. is awesome. Um, that's great. And like everyone kind of has these little games that they play and I'll do that now. So that is mostly what I rely upon these days is I'll go in the back and we have a lot of holds at ABP and I'll kind of wander if there's a big hold that kind of draws my attention. I like that as like a focal point. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? No big holds. I don't want any big holds. I've said a lot recently. Um, I'm going to go dig in the crates until I find that hold that nobody has ever used. <laughs> and then I'm going to find a way to use it. And <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Um, and I might pick only like three, four holds initially, and I'll go to the wall and I'll kind of stare at them. And one game I've had my setters play is we've done like a round robin where you give somebody a hold and you go, okay, tell me how you could use this. And they give a use and then you, they pass it to the next person. The next person has to come up with a different way to use this hold. Hmm. And then you pass it to the next person. And then that person has to come up with another way to use this hold. And you go until you've gone too far. <laughs> and <laughs> the ways that are being suggested are just horrible. But people weight. are like really scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. But that's where you start getting like some really crazy ideas. And then I tell them, go back to somewhere in the middle. Not the first uses, because those are the obvious ones. Not the mm. last ones, because those actually probably are not that good. Go to the middle ones. The ones that are like, uh, they weren't initial, but they are still valid uses of this hold. And then that's your challenge. And it goes at this climb. Um, <laughs> and so 
there's so many. And then as you get used to kind of building up these random challenges, you begin to learn how to expand them still further. Um, you can start playing games where somebody puts a hold on the wall, then you make everyone shift over one route to the left, and then you put the next hold on and shift them over. <laughs> the next hold on. And then you have to like deal with the chaos later in four running. But what you're usually dealing with is things that are at least different and being mm. willing to experiment and not put values to your experiment until it's done is I think the key part. You have to be open to experiencing something that might turn out to be just horrible at the end, <laughs> but you don't know and you'll stop the experiment too soon if you start saying, oh, it's bad. I don't think that's going to be good. You're like One of the big things in the design world is that you cannot judge your experiments until they're done. And even then you should still love them. Like there's some quote about like loving your ex ugly experiments, like an ugly child. Like it's like, you still love them. <laughs> they're maybe not what you would have hoped for. Um, there is value to it, either what in what you learned or the fact that it is, I like to make my setters actually have to experience if they're uncomfortable with something because it's, if they can't tell me exactly what the problem is with this boulder and they're just like, oh, this just rubs me the wrong way. It's like, good. I want you to sit with that for a while because I want you to understand what this, what your reaction is. And we want to dig in to see why this makes you uncomfortable. Why is this boulder rubbing you in a weird way? Like, it's just a boulder. So let's figure that out. And then probably there lies growth. So hmm. yeah, to answer this person's question, do everything, anything that you can imagine. Every experiment I think is valuable. <laughs> well, that was fascinating. And I'm, I'm really glad I asked that question. So thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. I have, uh, I, I reached out to Tande before this conversation and I got a really <laughs> great email from him and I want to draw on that for some, for some questions. And uh, okay. I'm going to read a chunk of it. I've got kind of three different chunks that, chunks that we can tackle, but I'll read the first chunk of it. And we've talked about this already, but I just want to share it for a little more context. And then I'd love to hear if you have any additional thoughts on it. Okay. So Tande wrote me and said, Christine was part of the original setting team at SBP. The interesting thing was that when I came in and started explaining the changes I wanted to make, I remember her resisting pretty hard at first. But once she understood my vision, she became one of the most valuable people in the success of implementing the new style of setting because she was one of the few people who wasn't just a setter. She worked front desk and coached the kids. And on top of that, she was the only woman on the team. So although she was a minority, she was in close contact with a huge demographic, everyone but the dudes and the bros who typically make up the setting crew. So I chose to weigh her feedback highly because that was the balance I was trying to bring, make a single climbing offering that challenged and rewarded everyone equally. You could ask her about her experience and perspective on that. And I'd love to do that. So we, we already talked about that, but do you have any other <laughs> thoughts that come to mind as I share that? Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads into like, um, kind of the idea, like what is the responsibility of setters? And then also when you throw that gender dynamic in there of like, what is the responsibility of setters when they fall within a minority or in many ways, the intriguing idea of what is the responsibility of setters when you fall within a majority? Um, and is representation of the minorities, uh, 
dependent upon having members of those minorities? Or is this something that could be accomplished if we all become more aware? <laughs> and I think that that's been a uh, evolving idea behind it. Um, I know that there's a big push for like, if we're going to have female centers, uh, there are going to be our best way of tapping into our female clients, uh, into the children. They're smaller. They're going to have a better idea and perspective on it. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I also think that that's such a cop-out. Mm. <laughs> I think that to say we will never be able to access those people. If I'm like a, like, I don't know, 510, V10 climbing, white man, do I just have no hope of understanding the experience of the people that don't look like me and climb like me at the gym? And um, I think the narrative so far in American gyms is very much, uh, nope, I don't have to do it. <laughs> like it's, if we want to know those climbers and access them, we should hire those climbers. And I think that we should hire those climbers if they're interested in doing it, because there shouldn't be a barrier to women or people of color or really any other, like people that are not super strong climbers. Like the barrier shouldn't exist for the sake of there being a barrier. Um, it should be because for some reason they're just not interested in it. And I'd still be curious as to why they're not interested in something that these other people are. Um, but I don't think that we should be telling them, you have to come join us to solve our problems for us. Mm. Um, I hate it when female setters get told, well, you're here, you're short. So reach check everything for us. And if you say it's okay, then we'll believe you when we move on. And, um, I was exposed, I, I admit that I bought into that a lot more at the time for a long time. And then I actually got exposed to that when I was in Japan. Um, I watched one of the setting crews I was working with reach checking and every was actually, they were all taller than I thought they would be. <laughs> they were very tall. Um, <laughs> and they were reach checking every single move, every one of them, every setter reach checked every move up to a certain level. And this was just what they did. And it, it was not, I'm too tall. I don't have to be responsible for that. It wasn't, I'm male. I don't have to do that. Oh, we have a female on the crew. Perfect. Like they had females that they brought in to work on things, but they were treated more as just expert setters and less of you're here to help us out with the release, like telling us if this small move works or not. Um, and the burden didn't lie with the females and the burden I think shouldn't lie with them because <laughs> partly I think mm -hmm. it's a lie to say like women setters are going to be shorter. They're not always, I know some very tall ones to say that they're going to be more in touch with the weaker climbers, I think is also wrong. I know some female setters that are very strong and climb only with the like really strong climbers and are less in touch with the newer climbers than some of the male setters. So I think that, and I, I look back on like Tommy's email looking about it and it was like, I think the value that he saw probably was just my amount of connection to the climbing community based on working with the kids, working as a, uh, working on instruction, working front desk, being at the gym all the time. And so actually just having personal connections within the, uh, with in the community. But I think that 
is disconnected from what my gender was. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that probably there, I mean, it's not to say it's fully disconnected, but I think at the time, a lot of the male setters were very much like they had this idea that I will only be a setter. I don't have to make extra money to do anything else. And they, I think society allows that to kind of happen a little bit. So potentially they're still like your female setters will be end up being more connected because they're not given the permission to not be connected. Um, but I think, yeah, the value of setters, I think really has to be with all those external factors. It's just easier to zero in on kind of like, what is your gender? What is your race? What is your climbing ability? But yeah, I, I appreciate that Tony was like able to really talk and he, we've talked about it and he was like, yeah, you were here all the time. You watch people all the time. And that is good. <laughs> and that was mostly what he <laughs> focused on with me um, is that I never felt like he was really saying you're female. Therefore, this is what's going to happen. It was like, you know, the climbers, therefore I'm going to listen to you. So I don't know, but yeah, it's my little soapbox of like, don't use female setters for that, but pay attention to who is talking to their climbers. And if you have your male setters that are not talking to all your climbers, I think that is on them and they need to start talking to them. And that makes them a less valuable setter, even if they climb more and they climb harder. I think they're less Mm -hmm. valuable than the setter that is much more involved in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, that was excellent. Thank you. And you really touched on a lot of points that um, he continued to write about in his email. Uh, He did have one follow-up question later that I want to jump to, Um, you know, given that that the responsibility to, I guess, have more athletic empathy, maybe as Tande would say it, or to have more empathy towards different body types and different people that come Mm -hmm. into the gym, um, you know, given that that responsibility is on every setter, what value do female setters bring to a team and why bother with diversity? That's something else that he was curious about. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's definitely some values. I mean, I'm to say that having the different body types is not valuable is I think it's not, we're not necessary to make it so that all the climbing in the gym works for women. We need them to be a check on the climbing, but I think it is valuable for where the initial ideas are coming from. Um, I worked with one female setter up at Seattle, or I very, very briefly have gotten to work with her at events because she got hired after I had left SPP and moved down to Austin. Um, and she was one of the most flexible climbers I've ever run into. And I remember like climbing on her things and her boulders always started lower. And one thing that we talk about, like diversity of a circuit is in many ways, just even start height and starting mm. position holders <laughs> like, don't all start comfortably. Like you'll have cyst starts, you'll have really high starts. You'll have ones that, and if you would like assume everything starts at like five, seven, like, you know, six feet off the ground or whatever, then like, we have really short climbers that are like, I'm tired of reaching to the tops all the time. I want to start at chest height one day. Um, and I think that we follow in fall into patterns of what we are just most used to kind of feeling and experiencing. And that's where like diversity of body type, size, et cetera, comes in is that the shorter climbers, which just by basic averages in the population, like women are going to generally be shorter than the men. Um, And I think climbing tends to reward taller men more (laughs) a little bit. So 
I think a lot of setters tend to be really tall. Um, not massively tall, but like, it's pretty rare to run into like five, five guys. There's plenty in the population, but I don't see them in setting world so much, but you do run into like five, two, five, three women in setting world a lot. So I think just having that shorter body type setting, what feels natural for it is helpful for the diversity of the setting and climbing in the gym. Um, it's not that that is the only thing they can do, but the thought processes behind it, just, I think it's easier to not fall into holes of everyone is the same size and climbs the same way. So we end up setting kind of similar to each other. And when you have those different diverse body types, the, Oh, it never occurred to me that you wouldn't be able to reach this. Oh, it never occurred to me that you can't high step that it like feels fine for me. Like those conversations I think are what allow us to kind of question what should exist in the climbing in the gym and like, wow, this is, is the high step too high? Or are we just all really inflexible? And if you have somebody on the team that's like super flexy and you watch them do it easily, you're like, well, I know what the answer is <laughs> like, we're all just really inflexible. And is not that as valuable as like strength? Um, mm. So yeah, I think diversity of body types, diversity of past experiences where women might have learned since they might not have been as strong and they might have learned different skill sets. Um, I definitely know I have, I fall into the stereotypical female setting in many ways. I know a lot of ladies that don't, but I do. I'm not physically strong. <laughs> my biceps are the same size as my forearms. Um, and so <laughs> I've figured out a lot of other trickery for climbing and you want those people on your setting team. You want the people that are going to like approach a boulder problem with more movement-based solutions rather than strength-based solutions. So it, an easy way is to try to hire diversity there. And then also, honestly, it's good for a team to have diverse viewpoints of just life in general. Um, the mm. culture on a team changes when you have diverse people on it. I think it allows for kind of deeper conversations. And I think those conversations lead to better psychological safety which is only good in a creative environment. So even if you throw out all of the climbing diversity and all of the strength diversity, I think that just it's good for people <laughs> to be exposed to viewpoints outside of themselves and to have to deal with that discomfort and to find common ground with people that they don't have the same backstory as and to still have to find value in those other perspectives and to be have to practice doing this again and again. That's what setting has to do all the time because we are throwing ideas against each other constantly. So to practice that just by like, not even setting ideas, but like, this is who this person is. They have a different experience than me. If I can get over that, then I'm gonna get over their opinion of my boulder. Like, <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. So I think that that is a big value of setting teams is just, we should and world in general is that people need to be better at uh, dealing with viewpoints that are not our own and being able to kind of hold both to be of equal value. I'm going to open up a whole can of worms here. This is also from, <laughs> this is from the end of Tande's email. And uh, he just asked a series of questions and I think they're all really good and they could all easily be a podcast conversation on their own. So I'm just going to ask his, uh, or just read his final paragraph here. And then I'd love, I'd love to just 
kind of expand on anything that you want to touch on from that. You know, if any of these questions really stand out and if you have anything that comes to mind, we can uh, just go with that. So okay. he writes, Christine is a great setter and teacher. I would ask her the same questions you would any influential setter. Where is setting going? How do we improve it? Is setting art? Pay and compensation for setting in the gym industry? And what would she like to see in setting comps? Dot, dot, dot. So um, a lot of different questions there. Do, do any topics <laughs> feel compelling or... <laughs> Wow, those are some big ones. Um, <laughs> the deep questions. The very, very deep questions. I mean, the last two are like for me in some ways, some of the more compelling ones. Um, even the idea of where setting is going, and it all kind of ties into this. Those really are like such big ones. I'll very quickly talk with Leah's setting art. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> 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 <It's> like, <laughs> Because, I'm not creative. No, it can't possibly be art. Nope. <laughs> well, no, I mean, and that's the distinction. It's like, is it art or is it design? And it, it does have a use. And I think that that is kind of the balance of like, we have to, like it, my mind, and I'm not, I, I didn't go to art school. So I'm sure that some people that went to art school are probably like going to kill me for this. Um, but in my mind, a lot of what happens in art is very much of this is my vision. And you don't really get to tell somebody what their vision and what they're choosing to create is in art. Um, it is very much owned by them. And that is not setting. Like our climbs are for somebody. We are making them for someone. And we say this is ours. Um, I think we are not doing our jobs. It is a cop out to say like, yeah, this is what I'm interested in. Cool. But it's like, no, no. <laughs> this is, the, this, it's, we're creating something for people to experience and it isn't just like in the way of art experiencing of like, oh, like, you know, when you go around an art gallery and you're like, oh, I don't know what that is. That's interesting. But like in climbing, <laughs> we're trying to actually have a purpose to it. Like, I don't know why I would put up a boulder that I'm not trying to have people learn something from or experience a very specific thing from. Um, and it has to take them into account. They are the focus when I'm making that boulder, not me. Uh, mm. So I think that is where I'm going to draw a very strong distinction. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a compelling argument. It's, so you'd call it design. a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, but for the other ones, um, I mean, I, I'm happy to talk. <laughs> I have feel very passionate both about like kind of where the direction of the setting industry is going. Um, but I also feel we've had some very interesting conversations around where competitions are going. Um, the BP setters, head setters, uh, back in 2019, the we, so we were travel, every head setter was expected to set at the other two competitions. Um, this bouldering projects have, each of the gyms has like a uh, large comp every fall. And we had a bit of a series left in like the fall of 2019 after Minneapolis had opened up and uh, we were beginning to kind of and we're seeing each other a couple of weeks apart and we're having these continued conversations about what competition climbing and setting is. And there were some super interesting ideas that got thrown out some of these conversations that I found absolutely fascinating, but I don't think are discussed enough in the climbing world. So I'm not hmm. sure which one you think people would be more interested in. I'm happy to talk industry, 
but I would also be very happy to talk about at least a proposed idea of what is something different that climbing competitions could be doing. Let's dig into that because now I'm curious. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I sold yeah, that one I'm, really it, well. <laughs> you did, yeah, and I'm I'm sure if I'm curious, other people are too. So yeah, let's let's go with it. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about we were talking about Yanya Yanya Gangra and why she's winning everything. And it kind of you you have these instances of these kind of historically really good comp climbers. Uh, in the U.S., you had that era where Danny Woods and Ants Puccio were winning all of the nationals. And then um, you have, uh, in Japan, you have Akio Noguchi winning all of the nationals. And you have um, some other climbers around that have a pretty good streak of doing really well in comps. And the question, it was actually brought up by um, the former head setter in Minneapolis, Ayos uh, Peju. And he was like, I think that they shouldn't win. <laughs> it was like, tell us more, Io. Um, and he, he was like, well, are the setters picking? It's like, we have these conversations when you're setting, when you're kind of building finals rounds, one of the very common things to do is discuss the boulders of who's going to top this, who isn't going to top this. And we're building into the rounds when we're setting, we're kind of deciding who we think is going to win. In many ways, we've decided before the competition even begins who the winner is. Wow. And that is such an unfair playing field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, fascinating. Like, do we have that power? And it's like, I have always, I've always compared like competition setters a bit to like the Hunger Games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like okay, I'm fascinated now. <laughs> Where, you know, like we throw, we, so... You, we are building a a play a playing realm, like the this playscape that people will be competing on, and we mm. are building. Often, we know that we have the ability to play, pay, uh, create. Ideally, we're creating one that is totally fair, but we can also very easily create something that is skewed, that is going to reward one climber over another. And the question is, should we? There's a lot of discussion of, I've heard many, uh, some experienced setters, and I can't remember who it was. I think it was somebody that I worked with at one of the Boulder Fest that wasn't one of our setters. It was a guest setter. And they were like, you let the winner win. And it was like, huh. interesting. So if this person is really strong, we let them win. Or is that what the winner is? Is it always the strongest climber? Because it's funny is the setters often know exactly, if you set for somebody often enough, you kind of know their weak points and you could choose to absolutely fuck with them if you wanted to. And for us to make a decision to not do that and for us to effectively pave the way for a climber to win, because, well, of course they're going to win. They're so much stronger than everyone else. They're way ahead of everyone else in the field. Like, are we doing our job and what is our job as a competition setter? And what would it, what would competitions look like if Instead of us saying we know who the winner is, what if we said this finals round is going to be set so that every single person coming into the finals could win it? Uh, instead of focusing on who the top of the, the field coming into finals is, what if we focused on the bottom of the field? And we every boulder in there is uh, set to what we know, at least strength-wise, this person is capable of. 
Um, it's risky. We don't like to do it because therein lies the land of a lot of potential ties, um, mm. which we don't like. Uh, setters don't like to look like we, everyone topped everything. Um, but is that a false concern? Is it possible that if we spend a lot more time creating a more diverse movement field for the competitors, could we actually truly find a situation where the lowest level climber coming in that we think is the lowest level climber could actually end up winning the competition? Um, and then mm. that seems to me that that should be what was actually the fairest. And we had that sketch. We're like, yeah, how, how would we go about doing this? I don't know if we know entirely how to do it, but I did experiment with it at the last Southwest Boulder Fest. So that's the big one at ABP that I achieved in 2019. I tried to toy with that initially. So, um, so our competitions are, they're kind of like the national cup competitions where you have a circuit of 10 climbs that are given to the competitors in a single category. So for the open category, they have 10 climbs only. And they are given unlimited attempts on these 10 climbs in three hours during the qualification round. And the highest number of tops, followed by, because we also do um, single zone holds, like IFSC, uh, so mm. tops broken by a number of zones, then broken by attempts to tops and attempts to zones. So then we take our tops, top six climbers to finals. And we have to believe that we're probably... If, so it used to be that I would show the setters during the whole week leading up to the competitions. I would provide them the athlete list and we would look at that and we'd be like, okay, well, we know what the top of the circuit has to be. We know these athletes are coming in. Okay. Well, we don't want anyone to have a bad experience. So if they sign up for open, we have to have a couple ones. So it'll be easy for them. And then you're like, okay. Uh, then we know what the qualification round looks like when we're setting finals, we've seen who the athletes are and we've kind of already decided used to be, we'd go through the list and be like, these six are probably going to be in finals. And so you build your finals based on that group of six. And it means that they're very tailored to that group. But again, that question of fairness, like, is that fair? Um, what about the other athletes? And so this last year, what I did is I didn't give them the athlete list. I was like, nope, I'm not giving you the list. I'll tell you Whoa. the tallest and I'll tell you the shortest <laughs> so that we make sure that the reaches are all there. But beyond that, I don't want you to know who is coming. I don't want you to throw that into the list. I'm going to give you grades and we have styles that need to be set. And we're going to build the best round we can based off of that. And then once you see the athletes and you see who makes it in finals, then we'll use that time period before finals to like make the tweaks that are necessary. if The difficulties are wildly off. But we're not going to build this to humans that we know. Um, and that seemed like at least a good step forward in trying to create a more even playing field. I don't know if that's something that could be done on international competitions because I think everyone knows who's going. Mm. Um, you know who is on the national team for that country. And you know who's probably going to make it into finals. You don't know for sure the entire way. But you have to start questioning when you watch somebody like Yanya and how many pumps in a row she has won. You have to question because she has things that she is not good at. Mm. She totally does. She's not perfect. She's really strong. She's really 
ballsy. Like she moves really well, but she is human. And if we are setting to what we know, she's just going to win and things that she knows she's good at. Is it not then the responsibility of the setters to start exploring what she might not be good at that potentially some unknown climber out of a country that we didn't even think was ever going to make finals suddenly turned out to be really fucking good at (laughs) you have a different finals crew. Um, and are we okay with that? And I, I don't know. I don't know if the setters are okay with that. Like there's definitely seems to be a narrowing of styles in last, like for a while there, there was like a couple years where every Boulder world cup finals seems similar. And that seemed like we kind of narrowed the field down a bit Mm. to like, well, these are the people that are getting the competition in finals. These are the people that are going to be kind of funneled into the future finals because they believe they can get there. And they uh, have gotten experience with like the comp jitters and all of that. And they're better prepared for world cup finals. And they just happen to be really good at this one style that we were producing. Um, Are we self-limiting and who's going to get there? Yeah. And I think that that's something that we as setters and comps have to ask because if we're saying that's the future of the sport, we're going to the Olympics, we're doing things, people are going to be heavily pushing into competitions. Do we not have a moral obligation to try to make those as fair as possible? And are we falling short right now? Well, that is fascinating. I've never thought about any of that and it all makes sense and it's fascinating. And I'm sitting here thinking like, is there any other sport that's going to be in the Olympics where this is even a consideration? You know, like a basketball court is a basketball court or, (laughs) you know, like a ski. I mean, maybe like a a downhill GS ski run or something if it's set a certain way. I don't don't know. I just can't imagine that there's... That's why I compare it to Hunger Games. <laughs> because it's like, and maybe we, our setters, have to actually be, and maybe that's an argument for like bringing the setters into prominence a little bit more. Because I think mm. when we are anonymous, like those situations are easier to hide behind. Like if we don't know who the setters are, then we can't see any of those potential biases and problems that might exist. I know that IFSC has some rules, like you're not allowed to chief a comp if you were that compass in your home country. But it, I mean, those questions come, came up in like the world championships back in 2016, I want to say when that was in Paris and suddenly it was the year that the French did best in a world championships. (laughs) And you're like, that's interesting. (laughs) Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's very fascinating that we play a greater role in the outcome of the competitions, but we, we hide behind the curtain. Um, and I do wonder mm. if there would be not necessarily more accountability, but potentially more responsibility if we were f- more prominent in the discussion around these competitions. It's not like they just appeared on the walls. It's like, actually, you should know who was around on the setting team. And if mm. there's more of a spotlight on us, we might uh, behave a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> That makes me want to ask, like, do you think the opposite happens at all? Like, are the climbers trying to figure out who set finals and do different setters have distinct enough setting styles that climbers can do anything in particular to prepare for that? Is, is that a thing? Um, I don't know. I haven't talked to any, like, um, I mean, on the lower level local competitions. Yeah, totally. They do. 
<laughs> like I know that, <laughs> um, that if, uh, like people, if they know they're coming to like a bouldering project competition, know that we have a different style because of our setters and will train to that style if they want to do well in our mm. competition. But I don't know for the World Cup athletes. That's a great question. You should ask that if you get somebody on the podcast at some point, you should totally ask them that. Yeah. Because I'm not, I know that they have access to that information. I don't know how much they're, how far in advance that is published and whether that feels useful or whether they're so far into their training cycle already that it's not so useful for them. Um, mm. And I also wonder because there is such a small group of people that are certified, if that even matters now. Like you see mm. the same person chiefing like two to three of the competitions, like our new director of route sitting Garrett, Garrett Greger is like, he's been involved in two of the world cup so far this year and is going to be at the Olympics. And it's like, it's not that diverse of a crew. So it could be that if you just kind of, and he was involved in a bunch of the previous years. And it's like, so if you kind of adapt to what you ran into in the world cups last year, you probably have a pretty good odds of running into almost exactly that same style mm. this year. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Probably just because it's so, so small, a group of humans, but then is that potentially an argument for IFSC to open up to a wider variety of people so that the climbers can train less to that style? And does that again, make a more fair playing field, hmm. especially for like new countries coming in that don't have as much access to like historical world cups. Uh, it seems like not having like the ability to train to that style because they haven't been exposed to that style. Is it not fair to some of these newer federations if they were, if there was a greater variety year to year across the world cups? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I just have one more topic I want to touch on. And, you know, you're talking about setters being more in the spotlight, how that might be a good thing for their accountability and, and for transparency. But there's this other side of that. And you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago about, you know, what are setters in the climbing industry? What do they mean to the climbing industry and what is their value? Because we're at this strange place, uh, the way I understand it from talking to you, talking to Tonde is that, you know, we still treat setters like the way we treat a lot of things in the climbing industry. We, we, we haven't really grown up fully yet. You know, we're like, these mm -hmm. people are young and enthusiastic mm -hmm. and psyched and they love what they do. And so therefore we can, we don't have to compensate them the way we, we would have to compensate a skilled laborer, like a welder or like, I don't know, some, mm -hmm. some other craftsman or something like that. Um, I would just love to get your thoughts on that. You know, where are we at now as far as that that side of uh, the industry goes and do you have a vision for the future or, or anything, you know, any soapbox, feel free to jump up on a soapbox and share <laughs> what you've been thinking about or take this however you want, but I, I would just love to get your perspective on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is the question and it's, I've, and it's been something that I think uh, every setter that I've run into, um, particularly in America, but it's it's greater than America. Like I have had this conversation with Florian. Um, I had this conversation with one of the Japanese setters that I was working with, this guy, Jin. Um, it is, I think, industry-wide, not necessarily even within like single countries, that there is, that is the question. We all, I think almost every setter out there feels that the climbing industry has been built on our backs and 
we do not feel that it has fully uh, acknowledged this. Mm. Um, and that there is uh, a lot of frustration, I think, across almost all the setters I've met um, that they want a greater recognition for what we bring to the industry. Because, I mean, without us, what is the industry? It's no, not too much different than Chuck E. Cheese at that point. <laughs> um, it's you have random structures that don't have a lot to them for people to climb on. And even then you still have, there is skill to be had in the route setting. And uh, the, the knowledge of how to attach a hold to the wall is not as simple as people think it is. And especially to do so in a safe manner is not as simple as people think it is. And I think as more people experience climbing, the uh, tolerance for that kind of liability risk that companies will have uh, is going to get smaller. And if you don't want somebody to get injured in your facility, the first thing you should be focusing on is then having well-trained setters. Like we are the first line of defense. If one of us messes something up, even some small mistake, and you've seen it at the highest levels. We all know the famous video of Yerene ripping the volume off of the lead world cup. And that's like those setters. I, you know, I, I doubt, I, I doubt everybody does. I, I, uh, I don't think I had cool. seen that until I talked with you and, and you were telling me about, you know, cause I was like, how, I mean the safety, yeah, I guess I get it, but like, how hard is it to bolt a, a hold to the wall? And then when you're talking about screwing on volumes and then attaching holds to volumes and using entire, chunks of plywood rip out of the wall you know that was really eye-opening for for me to hear about so um i'll, I'll be sure to find that video and put it in the show notes for people <laughs> yeah that because that video is crazy it's like this is somebody who it's like it's super early on it's like second bolt or something and yeah it's like it misses his head he rips this volume off of a stack of volumes and it apparently only had like one maybe two screws in it like definitely had one side where he was pulling out that didn't have a screw and he rips the volume off and it misses his head by like a couple inches. And Oof. it's like, whoa, there you are. There you are. And there's other ones. There's like a, another even older video of, I think it was Nale. Nale in a, I wonder if it was a World Cup. Maybe it was an Arco. Um, it actually might've been an Arco, but he's on a volume at the top of the wall and he just rides it down. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it just rips off the wall and down he goes on top of it and you're Jeez. like oh wow okay and that's a thing um and just rides it down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that one's it's an like older a, video if you can like find a cartoon. that one it's like crazy <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. like roadrunner or something <laughs> yeah and it's like fortunately a small like like shallow fiberglass volume i think it was like an ep walk or something okay or something close to that um and so it's like, it wasn't going to be massively damp, but any time a hold rips off with a climber attached to it uh, is really <laughs> problematic because it's so preventable. But it is also like anyone that has worked in any craft, any building knows that it is so easy to mess something up. Mm. Um, even like, and climbing is a newer industry that doesn't have good, a solid training that goes into things. There's a reason that we send welders through certification processes that aren't assessing uh, how pretty is your weld, <laughs> but rather, is your weld strong? Is your mm. weld going to not break on somebody when they it can't break? And you get different levels of certification depending on how consistent that weld is and how likely it is to break or not. And 
that's an older industry that has had the time to build that in. Um, and setting is such a new industry that we haven't been able to build in those certifications of, is this person going to be competent in uh, putting up boulders that aren't climbs on the wall, holds onto the wall, and attaching them in all the different ways we're asking people to attach them based on how hold manufacturers are making them? And are they going to be able to do this in a way that isn't going to result in somebody eventually ripping a hold off that's 20 pounds and having it come down on top of their head and killing them? Um, and that's something that the industry has to recognize is going to be, is coming. Like <laughs> there's enough videos of people doing things that either having holds rip off in their hands or clients that an experienced setter would look at and be like, oh no, oh no, no, you don't set that because that hurts people. Mm, as far as like a tweaky move or. I mean, I saw, we had one at AVP that I should have known better. I kick myself about it every day. It was, um, years ago. And, um, we had, it was a couple like of the kilter, um, kaiju noodles, like the original kilter kaijus that came out there, like the big elephant noses. And we had put them together in a corner and somebody, and I remember being like, nobody's going to be dumb enough to put their leg in there. Somebody put their leg in mm. there and, fell and broke it. And that Gosh. is something that newer setters because the person that put it up was newer to setting than I was. And, but even then I was an experienced setter and I made that, I made the call that it was okay. Um, and I now know that that was not okay. I had been setting at that point for, I think, uh, six years. And it was like, well, even at six year mark, apparently I didn't know. Um, now I know I'm at the 10 year mark and I like, yeah, <laughs> we don't do that because people will do that. They'll mm. put their foot in something that they're not supposed to, or they'll put the hand where they're not supposed to. As much as you would hope that they would be smart enough to figure that out, they are not. And are we okay with that? And that's something that I talk to some setters that are like, yeah, our head, I'm a head setter at my gym. I've been setting for a year and a half. And you're like, you're the mm. head setter at this gym and you don't know anything. Who then makes the call about safety? And mm. that is what our industry is built on. When you are building an industry that is reliant upon, it's kind of a heavy, fast turnover of setters. Most people will leave because most setting jobs are incredibly rough on your body. You cannot do them. If you're setting four or five days a week, you can't do that for more than 10 years. You'll leave, your setters will leave in their thirties. Um, most setting teams are much younger than that because we're, we've built, it pays very little. If you want to start a family, if you want to start thinking about, if you get old enough, you start thinking about retirement. If you start thinking about like, I'm getting injured now, I need health insurance. All of these are things that are not standard in the climbing industry. Uh, most setters don't have access to health insurance, or if they do, they have access to it, but only if you're willing to work four to five days a week. Um, oh, that's crazy. Like then you're breaking yourself to have health insurance. Um, <laughs> and then you're still talking to people that are paid often the standard rates. I think there was a, um, climbing salaries, Instagram that had like asked people to anonymously submit your salaries, what gyms you work for and like what location, maybe not the gym, but like the location that you're in. Um, and what do you do? And then what is your salary or how much are you making? And the average answer for setting is like 14 to 16. 
and this was last summer. Um, and uh, hour, uh, yeah, dollars per hour, starting at fourteen to sixteen dollars an hour. Okay. And you're not making that much for, yeah, you're not saving for retirement. You're <laughs> not starting a family <laughs> that amount. Like I'm looking around now, and it's like. Uh, Dairy Queen at a small town in Texas that I just drove through recently was hiring their people for 15 starting wage. Um, and you're like, wow, there's a lot of setters out there making less than the Dairy Queen workers are. Hmm. And the industry seems to be okay with this a little bit. Um, it doesn't seem to be making massive changes to move away from this. So I have to assume that they are somewhat okay with it. <laughs> and the model works if you have a existing supply of just new setters constantly coming through as people get older, they're broken. They stop being as excited about something and they start thinking about how this actually works long-term in their lives. And they realize this is not a sustainable career. They leave it. You, we are lucky that we can fill in with new setters constantly because everyone's like, it's fun. It's a fun job. And people in the climbing world want to be involved in it. It's, is really rewarding in many ways. I do not regret my time setting in any way, shape, or form. Um, but it relies on fresh blood. We rely on these 20-year-olds to come in constantly, but therein lies the risk. <laughs> if you have a gym that has so much setter turnover that you lose setters after a couple of years, then who is going to gain enough knowledge to know that this is going to hurt people or who's mm. going to hold the um, enough knowledge to be able to like set standards that the gym should be following. Uh, and that is, that's something the industry has to wonder about. I think. Yeah. Do you have a vision for how that could be better? Is it, does it come down to developing training and certifications for people? You know, if people, if we raise the, uh, level of training and then we raise the requirements to become a setter then we can mm -hmm. raise the the wages is it something like that or is it not need to come from the culture oh, how do you think about that that is a great question um i think it has to come from a couple different things a like we recognized Dante and i had talked about this a bunch we talked about how do we professionalize setting in a way that we can go to the gym owners and say hey we're professionals like pay us as professionals it's nobody's going to want to pay you $25, $30 an hour if you have people rolling in and their flip-flops, forerunning in their flip-flops, not paying attention <laughs> to any of the customers, goofing off, figuring what they're doing, standing on top of ladders, doing like backflips off, or like hopping ladders around, moving them with their feet. Like we've seen all of this <laughs> wrestling in the setting area. Like if we want to be taken for like as professionals, we have to change our behavior to act like professionals. And that is sadly while we are moving in that direction. And that is uh, really heartening. Um, and that's one thing I do have to give a lot of credit to USAC for is that I think they're setting clinics and they're, wanting to professionalize the competitions has spread out culturally to professionalize the idea of like, people are like, I am a route setter and it's no longer okay to roll in. Just like, I don't have a drill. I don't have any of my own tools. I uh, don't wear closed toed shoes and I don't know what safety is. And it's like, USAC actually has done a good job to make that at least if, if the only certifications we have that are that at least 
they're pushing the safety and professionalism. Um, so that's useful, but there's only so far that'll go because we've we're trying that and we're not seeing like a massive budge of pay rates. Um, I think it comes down to the basic economics of it in any industry. Pay rates will rise when companies cannot find employees to fill the positions. And Mm. The sad state of it right now is I think that it's still a fun enough situation for people that they're always companies are always going to find another person that's excited to take that position for 14 an hour. Um, and I don't right. know. It doesn't give me massive amounts of hope for the direction of where the industry is going as long as that exists. And that's why I'm hoping, well, I'm not hoping for it, but I fear that the change will probably come from some safety accident that occurs that shines a spotlight on the liability that gyms will be assuming by having inexperienced setters. And then they will have to start looking for experienced setters. And then there might be demand for certification processes, et cetera, um, and setters that can demonstrate that they've been working for a certain period of time or have been through this training or that training will then be able to command a bit more of a premium price um, and gyms are at risk if they don't have those people and will potentially pay higher insurance premiums or something. Cause I'm sure insurers, if they catch on to, oh, there's more risk. If you don't have this quality of worker here, you should do that. Or if we find out that you're doing something different, we're not going to give you as good a rate. Like hmm. potentially that will come in the future. And it's, a, it'd be really sad if that's the direction it has to go, um, I don't want that to be what makes the climbing industry sit up and change, but I'm a little pessimistic of um, how gym owners are viewing it right now. I think that there's kind of an assumption that things are getting better and we have, we're paying people well, but it's not every gym's doing that. Some gyms are like some gyms have been increasing their pay rates. Like the BPs pay fairly well. I have to give them kudos for um, like, their pay rates are significantly higher than a lot of other gyms. But if the industry doesn't change as a whole, then there's no reason for the climbing gym that wants to pay their setters 12 an hour to pay anything higher. If there's a couple of bunch of other setters are like, yeah, 12 an hour seems normal. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll take the job. But if people are like, oh, I can just go down the street to that gym that's going to pay me 25 like, why would I take this $12 an hour one? Mm. <laughs> well, fascinating. I don't know. That, yeah, that is all fascinating. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, I just have a couple more quick questions for you, and then I think I'll let you go. I've taken a lot of your time today. <laughs> Um, okay, good. <laughs> this is super fun. I'm, I'm loving this conversation and it's fascinating and I've been climbing indoors for a long time and I've never thought about a lot of this stuff. So I think, I think it'll be really interesting for people. Uh, but I would love to ask you, do you have any tips for setters listening to this? Um, people managing gyms that have a setting crew, whatever, but anything that you found that helps you just take better care of your body when you're root setting? Mm. You know, I've had a couple of friends that have had to leave uh, careers as setters or jobs as setters simply because it was just wearing them down and they wanted yeah. to climb and they were psyched and they were just tired of being tweaked all the time. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think if the gyms want to take better care of their setters coming at it from that direction, because I think the ultimate solution lies there is a... A, I 
do think setters should have access to health insurance for less than four days a week of work. And I know that that is such a hard thing to negotiate with health with insurance companies. And maybe it's as simple as the gyms providing vouchers for their setters to go out and purchase insurance on the marketplace so that it's outside of like the gyms negotiated insurance with their companies that they're working with. Um, I don't know entirely there, or if there's like kind of an understanding that the setters will have an additional other work that is just a natural part of the job that isn't physically like doing the same level of work every day, but maybe you would limit it to like two to three days, because I think long-term you have to build the rest days. And for the setters, uh, people cannot set four days in a row, five days in a row, week after week after week that you will just get the overuse injury. Some people can't very few of them. And I think at that mm. point, it's just a gamble on the genetics of the person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, some climbers can never take a rest day and it's like, cool, good on you. I got to take rest days. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I don't think that'll ever change. Um, I do think the other aspect gyms can do is even if we can't get the fetal health insurance, having the setters have a high enough rate they're not forced into a rough position where it's like, well, if I want to eat, I have to work five days a week. If I don't care about food and housing, then I can work less. And to actually pay a higher rate, like if you're not paying somewhere in the mid-20s, then working three days a week is just not sustainable. So I think that is another thing that if gyms are super serious about supporting their setters, and giving them space and time to be able to recover, they have to pay a higher rate to them. In lieu of the gym meeting setters in that realm, uh, I think some of the key ones for setters is um, trying to be really smart about um, kind of how you work within your area. Uh, I think that there's a lot of like, oh, I'll just move, like. Some volumes are huge these days, <laughs> for example, um, getting rid of like, we don't have T-nuts in our volumes and we did it initially as a like, oh, it's just easier to screw holds on. But whenever I like have to carry a volume that is fully T-nutted, it's like, holy fuck, this is so heavy. And that's mm. going to continue to wear on your body. Um, so I think being mindful of you don't have to work that hard. Like if you're carrying something really heavy, getting people to help you, it's not an admission of weakness. It's a, let's be efficient with our time and energy. Uh, I think another big thing that headsetters should be pushing is making sure that their setting teams are following all safety protocols. It's really dumb if a setter gets injured on the job in a preventable way. There's that, but it is something that will shorten somebody's lifespan in that realm. Um, there's mm. no excuse for a setter to have, a, like if they're working at a rope gym, there's no excuse for them to have a rope accident. It happens. And it's something that we just have to work into the training and work into safety protocols that will keep the setters safe there. Um, whether that means that the head setter has to be around when somebody's tying in to like, just because we expect people to have partners tie them in if setters are working alone. Like, how do we guarantee their safety at that point? Mistakes happen. Um, or if there's no reason that setters should be working on ladders in a situation where ladders might fall, 
or working situations where if they their ladder does fall over that they'll land on things. Um, keeping areas clean, asking your setters to be mindful of clean areas, asking them to wear all the PPE that they're supposed to wear. All of this is things that will help people's bodies go further. And then also exploring um, density, like setting fewer boulder problems in a day. If gyms are open to a slightly less density, uh, that will be easier on setter bodies or hiring more setters to help fill that load. Like asking setters to set 10, 12 boulder problems in a day and then forerun those boulder problems, which means that you're looking at like 30 to 40 boulders sometimes forerun in a day. That's insane. Mm. That's so much. And to ask them to do that day after day is really hard. So building in the demands and then if setters don't have an option there, can setters and the crew work out with their coworkers? Who's going to have the easy day today? Who's going to have the hard day today? Who gets the rest day? quote unquote, and only sets easy boulders or, and foreruns easy things. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to work faster today to take that load off of somebody else, knowing that later in the week they get the easy day. Um, I think that, and then doing, you have to be in physically good shape. A lot of my injuries in climbing have, as a headsetter have come from kind of on again, off again, climbing schedules where I get really busy with something at the gym and I can't go down and set and forerun. And then when I'm free again, I'm like, yes, I'm going down. And then I go too hard because I'm not ready for it and I get broken. Um, making sure that they're maintaining like a good physical strength base that's based on like good mechanics and that they have good levels of mobility, that they have good uh, stabilization muscles so that the injuries are not hurting them as much um, and their body is just able to take like a larger load in general. But at setting up air setting shops, making it so things are physically accessible, getting step stools and other things. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that can be done, I think, to reduce load. Awesome. Well, thank you for all that. That's incredibly, I think that's going to be incredibly helpful for a lot of people listening mm -hmm. that are in the industry. So, yeah, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Where are you at now? Like, what is your current role in setting? Um, where are you at in your career? And what's next for you? Yeah, so I actually just stepped down from being headsetter at ABP. Um, so I've been a headsetter here for six years. And I think I was running into the same walls that I think a lot of setters in the industry are running into. Um, where, and especially I think as gyms are growing larger and they're learning how to kind of scale up. Um, the VPs are doing that, and I think that there's a lot still to be learned about what a headsetter role is and what a manager role at a gym is, et cetera. But I was finding that I was suffering a lot. Um, my mental health was not doing the greatest. I was feeling a lot of stress and pressure. Um, I was moving further away from setting and more into just almost an admin supportive role. And then obviously I kept injuring myself when I tried to come in and set and climb. And mm. I think this was something that was a long time coming. Um, I like being in positions where I can learn. And I feel like one of the other things that being kind of, I don't want to say trapped in the middle of central Texas, but it, I had originally come down thinking I was going to be here for two years and that I was going to move away, go somewhere <laughs> else because there's not a lot of outdoor climbing around here. And it's like, I like climbing outside and being limited to only being able to do this on like longer trips 
um, which means I can only do it a couple times a year is uh, harder than I had anticipated um, for, I think, both my coping with stress and um, my development as a climber, what I wanted my development as a climber to be. And I think I learned a lot of valuable things, but at some point I was like, who's going to teach me? So, like, I could go set on these trips to France, Japan, you know, and like learn some stuff there and then come back. But then I was expected to be the teacher. Um, And I think I'm ready for a chapter where I can start learning again. So, I'm really excited about actually being able to step back away from like management role and step into just being a setter again and kind of play with a lot of the ideas that I've been wanting to play with and get to experiment and kind of see how I can continue to improve myself as a setter um, and then have more time to improve myself as a climber, which is really exciting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then that also provides me some freedom. I feel I would, one of the things that has kind of trapped me here in Austin is the ability is like saying, well, what happens to the gym if I leave? And I think this is also a good first step towards feeling a little bit more free to leave AVP. It's if I'm not in charge of it anymore and somebody else has taken on the responsibilities for the program, um, I don't feel guilty if I'm like straight up, all right, cool, I'm going to go this other place. No peace, because that transition's <laughs> already been made. And so it's like, cool, the program's going to be fine. The setters are going to be fine. Um, the gym's going to be fine. I can leave and it won't be problematic. So I think that it's, I'm very excited for the next step forward. I don't know what it is though. Uh, I think <laughs> it was hard as a head setter to really have time and space. Like I'd come home from a day of like, I wouldn't even be setting. I'd come home from a day of just being a head, being a head setter, which, you know, you're running your setting crew, you're talking, you're running a bunch of, um, we have greater requirements of what our managers are trying to create as we become a more official company. And then I'm running the wall maintenance program. I'm running the instru- adult instruction program. And you just have paperwork and meetings, <laughs> uh, reviews, and you come home and it like takes like three, four hours to like be able to relax enough to go to sleep. And you're like, mm that's, that's not, that's not a happy life. And I don't want to climb because I don't want to be at the gym any longer than I have to be, but I feel guilty if I'm climbing at the gym because I'm supposed to be doing, there's all this work I have to do. So I think this is going to be so much time to actually think about what the next step is. Cause before it's like, you can't think you're just like stuck in place vibrating. stress. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, cool. I'm going to less stress, less stress. That's key. And then I can start thinking, do I want to go back into biochem? Do I want to go explore an entirely different industry? Um, I would feel sad, but I mean, as we've already discussed, like the reality of setting is it doesn't pay massively well. So if I'm looking to my future, is there a future in setting for me still? Or is this something that can be a fun side project for a while and pay some bills while I'm trying to find something that will pay for my retirement? I don't Hmm. know. But it's a real question, and I think every setter has yeah. to ask themselves that. Well, that's awesome. I'm I'm excited for you. It sounds like this is Thank the you. start of a, a pretty cool new <laughs> chapter. So, yeah, yeah, I'm excited yeah. to hear where it ends up going. Um, <clears throat> you've talked about learning a couple times and how much you love to learn, and you know now you've created space for yourself to be able to do that. 
What is something mm-hmm. that you are excited to learn more about right now? Um, you know, whether it be a specific component of your own climbing or of your setting or other, does anything come to mind that you're excited about? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And my setters, if they ever listen to this podcast, you're going to laugh really hard about this one. Um, <laughs> I'm actually absolutely horrible at dynamic movement. <laughs> I am absolutely horrible. And I was telling you like running the circus is actually in the last like couple months been really useful on this. And I'm like, wow, I feel like I'm becoming better at this. Um, I just set up two years ago, I think it was 2019. Um, the summer of 2019, I had a really cool opportunity, uh, premium holds up in Dallas, uh, had hosted a clinic with Laurent Lepore, um, who's one of like the most epic setters ever. <laughs> like, he's amazing. He's like the godfather of setting in like the world cup era. Like, so he's French. He runs cheetah climbing holds. He was also a major shaper for um, a lot of the EP holds, entreprise holds, and including some of the iconic shapes like the Taijitsu, which is like that tour, like urinal-shaped one that everyone knew about in the World Cups <laughs> back in the early 2010s. Um, that a lot of like the flat hold stuff is based off of. Um, and so his main goal now is like shaping, and he shapes from his experience as a World Cup setter. But he was one of the big people that drove a lot of the kind of integrating more of the dynamic movement into the World Cups. And we did like a th- uh, two, three day clinic with him and it was so cool. Um, and I learned so much about how to set dynamic movement. And I learned, I am, it's like, a, it's really cool process to work through um, because it depends so much on the wall angles and the hold angles. And there's so many subtleties to play with. And I am not good at that. And I think that that is something I've never really felt like the opportunity to explore as a setter. I often felt really pigeonholed into like, I've always wanted to fill the gaps that the other people on the team aren't setting. And, um, there's often one of the most commonly, uh, common patterns of a lot of new setters is that particularly the guys, but not always, um, is that they get really excited on setting dinos. And so you always will have somebody mm-hmm. on the team that's just setting all these dinos. And <laughs> you're like, well, we have one already. We don't need a second one. <laughs> and I think as a shorter climber and somebody who's not necessarily very good at jumping, that it always was like, I might set something that I understand as a dino, but then other people are like, this isn't a jump. Because that's always the question of like, who is this jump for? Like, well, I'm taller. I'm like 6'2". It's not a jump for me. And it's like, so I can't set it if it's not a jump for you? And I'm Oftentimes the dinos in the gyms, I think, are set that way. But um, I'm interested in exploring things that feel like dynamic movement for me and my size and people that are a little bit shorter and also exploring, can we take it to lower levels? And can we start introducing these skills into people at uh, different, at like very early on in their climbing? And just, I'm bad at it. So I'm psyched <laughs> to <laughs> learn because I like I like working on things that I'm bad at, <laughs> whether it be setting, whether it be climbing, other things in life. Um, not always. Sometimes it's harder to convince yourself to work on bad things. But I think that is the first gap that I'm kind of excited about is I want to be that setter that everyone on the team kind of hates because they won't <laughs> stop setting dinos right now. <laughs> yes, you're just going to bro out on all of them. 
More dinos. Grow out on all of them. Dinos only. Amazing. And I'm going to get told to, to stop. <laughs> yeah, I just set this purple dino that, so our purple circuits are V2 to V4. And I thought it felt like a V4, um, but I think it might actually be better if you're a shorter climber um, who can't jump very far. So if you overpower <laughs> the move or if you're a little bit too tall, this jump doesn't work very well. Or I have gotten better at dinos than I thought in the last couple months, but I don't think that's actually too much the case. Either way, everyone <laughs> thought it was really hard. Um, I don't think it was. I think it was a different style. And again, it's that idea of like diversities of bodies. Like you want that diversity because then you might end up with situations like this where I found a dino that I think is honestly easier if you're shorter and weaker. Hmm. but yeah Yeah, that's fascinating i'm probably going to be hearing about this dino for like uh months from now so i'm very excited for one (laughs) yeah oh well christine this has been awesome this has been so much fun talking to you and it's been yeah we've covered so much good stuff and it's been a really fun conversation i've really enjoyed it so thank you so much yeah, you're welcome. I've had a fantastic time. I love to talk things. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> you, you make a good podcast guest. That's a great quality in a podcast guest. Um, I just Perfect. have one more question. I always I always leave with mm-hmm. this one. What is something that you have been feeling especially grateful for lately? Oh, man. There's so many things. I've been trying to practice for like mental health, practice gratitude. Um but I am right now feeling particularly grateful for actually the BPs being a company that was going to allow me to step away. So this is a decision I made only a couple of weeks ago and they could have said no and, and they could have made it really difficult. And instead, particularly my boss, my GM, um, was so supportive as soon as I was like, I think this is something that I need to do for everyone's sake, my own, <laughs> like everyone around me. Um, and he was so supportive. And the fact that I can still like count on an hourly job that pays well and will give me the flexibility to be able to find what is next in my life. And not just the company, but then also all of the setters that I'm working with and the other managers, everyone's been very much like, okay, cool. We're psyched that you're psyched. And it makes something that was like actually moving into it, like a really scary experience of like, shit, I'm about to effectively quit my job. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't have a backup plan of what I'm going to. Um, It made it a much less scary and feels really nice. So I think that is what I'm particularly grateful Mm. right now is that, uh, the ABP employees have been, are, are awesome. And the BP like directors have been uh, very professional and kind in this. So, Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Hmm? Hmm. All right. That's all the questions I got. That's everything, but I'd love to do this again. Cause there's, there's definitely some of these topics <laughs> that we touched on. <laughs> that deserve a longer conversation. And, uh, I know yeah, Tante's again, list right at the end. Fun. It was like, Oh man, that's so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, think he was just giving down, me ideas. Whatever. I don't think he, he didn't intend for me to, um, read them all off necessarily, but they're all good. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll I hold know. on to his email and you and I can do a round two sometime. How about that? Cool. Sounds good. 
Sounds great. I would love to. Awesome. Well, Christine, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I look forward to round two sometime in the future. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, let me know if there's anything else you need from me. Okay. Um, I'll be yeah. in touch. Yeah, I'll shoot you an email. Cool. Okay. Thanks yeah. so much. Enjoy hey, the rest good. of your day. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Okay, bye. Like we do it.